0: I want to invite you to continue to worship with me as we study God's word in the passage that was just read, uh, the end of Luke chapter 20. As you're turning there, I want to confess, uh, you, Donnie, yeah, I appreciate it, you, you asked us to be real and transparent, so I'm just going to let you guys know that, that uh, I'm, I'm going to open my life up a little bit. For, for years, uh, m- my most embarrassing moments were on a regular, a regular schedule. Um, because every year, I had to go to the eye doctor. <laughs> uh, I, think, I appreciate you g- going, g- getting ahead of me where this joke is going. Uh, every year, I, I went to the eye doctor, and as I was, as I was aging, my eyes were declining. I get, think that's a thing that happens uh, until they, they level off, and uh, it, it reached a point a uh, n- long time ago for me, honestly, where you know you go into the eye doctor, you're wearing your glasses or whatever. You take them off and, and you cover one eye, and you're sitting there facing the wall. It's got the mirror, and, and behind you, above you, is is it's just letters, right? And the doctor asks that just humiliating question: Just read the first, th- the you know the, the the smallest letters that you can see. And I have to respond: Do you have some bigger letters? <laughs> uh, yeah, I work I work contacts, but you just. I'm. I'm. I have really bad eyes, um, and so. And and I, I. I loaded this moment with way more meaning than it should have been. It's almost like I felt like in that moment I needed to apologize to the doctor. You know, I'm sorry. Like. I haven't been taking care of my eyes or something. I don't even know what, what I would say. And he's like, like, dude, I don't care, you know, like uh, not my eyes, uh, I'm just, and, I, and every time I would be like, oh, that, that makes sense. But, but I would be anxious going in, I would feel embarrassed in, in the moment, all that kind of stuff, uh, because I could not even see the big E on the eye chart. Uh, and, and so, and, and it's, it was like an ethical dilemma for me as well, right, because we know what the letter is, it's an E. It's the phrase. It's the big E on the eye on the eye chart. He could be like, "What's the small?" And I could at least say E, but then my eyes would not be helped, and that would not be good, right? So I had this moment where I was like, do I want to preserve some level of dignity here, or do I want to be able to see? And I I usually went with I want to be able to see. It was humiliating for completely unnecessary reasons, but because I could not see the, the big E on the eye chart, it would have been totally pointless for me to try to keep going down the chart, right, and see smaller and smaller, more minute, more detailed, more angular letters, and all that kind of stuff. It was kind of pointless that you start with the, you start with if you can't see the e don't don't try to get the kind of minutia that that is downstream of the e right I think something similar is instructive for us as we interpret and look at the passage that is in front of us today The last several weeks, we've been looking at a series of uh, verbal debates and conflicts between the Lord Jesus and this group uh, or different groupings of Jewish leaders. And these leaders have been trying to trap Jesus in one way or the other. Walter helpfully framed it last week as saying they they were either trying to turn the crowds that were very pro-Jesus, they needed to turn the crowds against Jesus, and they needed to trap Jesus in some kind of legal trouble so that the Roman authorities would find justification to arrest him and eventually kill him. So they kind of had these two goals and so they keep coming at him with all of these different questions and tests and time after time, they failed to accomplish what they were trying to do. They asked him about his authority. Where's his authority come, come from? They asked him about taxes. They asked him about marriage and all these kind of tricky tests to try to get him to, to, to trip over himself and, and time after time they have failed and now we get to the passage in front of us and it's Jesus' turn. And what I want you to see from this text today is that Jesus has the opportunity to ask them a question and he does not get into all the, the minutiae. He does not get into the fine details of some kind of obscure interpretation. What he does is he asks them a fairly basic question about the redemptive plan of God. And these religious leaders couldn't answer it. He wants to ask them about what God is doing. Again, these are religious leaders. They knew their Bibles. They were teaching their Bibles. They were experts on what, on God. They were were like God professionals. And yet it comes time for Jesus to ask them about what God's plan is for the rescue and redemption of the world and his people and they have nothing. It's as though Jesus was asking them to see the big E on the eye chart. And these leaders have to hang their head and say, we can't see it. And because they couldn't see it, Jesus exposes them as fraudulent, as unfaithful, as self-serving leaders who are not actually representing God well. They are not actually swimming kind of in the direction in their leadership and in their influence uh, the same direction as God's great plan. And then Luke, he he kind of adds to this section uh, a story of of a contrast between these, these unfaithful leaders and this faithful widow. And he wants us to see the, the separation there. They and all of their, their pomp and circumstance, all of their esteem are shown to be unfaithful while this, this mere poor forgotten widow is held up as an example. She, it seems, could see the big E and had built her life accordingly. So let's make sure this morning that we don't miss the big E on the I chart that that Jesus is is holding out for us. And I wanna give you just three exhortations along these lines. The first one is very simple. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Verse 41, it says that, that Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? As I mentioned, it's now Jesus' turn to do the, the question asking. And the, the essence of his question is basically whether or not these religious leaders really understand their Bibles, whether they really understand God's redemptive plan as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And in order to kind of show them that they do not re- understand, he basically holds up two puzzle pieces from their theology, from their doctrine, from their Bible, and says, hey, you agree with these, you, you got these two pieces of the puzzle, right? And they're like, yes, and yes. He said, how do they fit together? And they, they can't answer it. So let's look, at, let's look at those two puzzle pieces one at a time. The first puzzle piece is that the Christ is going to be a descendant of the great King David. This is something no one would have disputed. All of them would have been able to turn very quickly in their Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 23, verse five, where it says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is a, a prediction, a prophecy of the coming Messiah that very clearly says it's going, to be, it's going to be from the line of David. Everybody understood when the Messiah, when the Christ comes, when the rescuer comes, he's going to be a descendant of the great King David. So much so that when Matthew begins his gospel, he starts off with a genealogy and he says it like this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. The first thing he wants us to know about this Christ that he's telling us about is he's got the credentials. He is the son of David. And so the first, the first puzzle piece is the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a descendant of King David. The second puzzle piece is a quotation from Psalm chapter 110. And he just quotes verse one of that psalm. Where the psalmist who is david it's very clearly identified as david refers to the lord's messiah as my lord now to your eyes that might not seem like uh, too difficult of a problem why is it a big deal that david refers to the messiah as my lord but this presented to everyone hearing a this this internal conflict a check that just said well that can't be right And the reason was is because absolutely everyone would have just assumed that older generations were were due more honor than their descendants. There is no world in which King David would refer to one of his offspring, much less one of his grandchildren or his great grandchildren or his great great grandchildren with the, the esteemed title of my Lord. There was just no, they, they had no category for that. And so Jesus says, you got one, ca- one puzzle piece that says this person's gonna be in the line of David, and then you got this other puzzle piece that says David's referring to him as Lord? How do, how do those things go together? Not only that, but even the idea of the Messiah was wrapped up in the kind of remembrance of King David. David was like the OG anointed one. All right. He was, he was, you think anointed one, you think Messiah, you think God's chosen man. You immediately, like, you don't have the, if they didn't have the face of the Messiah in front of them, the placeholder for the face that they had, it was David. He was, the, he was the template of this. So how is it going to be that David, who is kind of the template for this person, would somehow esteem the, the, the Messiah, his descendant, as higher than himself? Jesus says, how do, you, how do you guys put those things together? And they, they could not answer it. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not saying that they can't or should not believe both of those puzzle pieces. Jesus believed both of them. So he's not saying, you got to pick one. Which one are you throwing away? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, both of these things are true. Do you guys even understand what God is doing and piecing them together? And Luke records that they have no response. Matthew actually tells us that they are unable to answer and they are silenced from answering or asking any more questions. These men were stumped. They who had presented themselves as as the leaders, the professionals, the experts who were here actually to test and to kind of uh, lead to Jesus's downfall because they were trying to protect and preserve and to usher in the kingdom of God. And they looked at Jesus and said, he's getting in the way, we gotta get rid of him. They were doing everything they can to work with the plan of God. And in reality, they didn't understand any of it. They didn't understand what God was doing. They did not understand how the Messiah would one day be greater in honor than even King David because he would, in fact, be God who took on flesh. They could not even fathom that one of David's offspring, born of a woman, was, in fact, the God-man who was born to die for the sins of the world and to usher in the kingdom of God. They could not conceive of what God was doing, and they, they just got none of it. And I think, I think perhaps worst of all in this whole scenario is they didn't understand that the one he was asking them about was standing right in front of them. I mean, it is, it's just a little bit on the nose, don't you think? Jesus gets his turn to ask a question. He could ask them anything about the depths of the mystery of God, and he's like, I'm going to go with a a Messiah question. And it's almost as though he says, okay, let's talk about the Messiah. While he's asking his question, he's putting on a trucker hat that's like number one Messiah over the front of it, okay? And he asks them this question, and they're like, I got nothing. He's, He's right there in front of him in front of them. These guys knew their Bibles. They knew all kinds of religious practices. practices. They, they kept all the rules. They said all the right things. But when the fulfillment of God's plan was staring them in the face, they were blind. They could not see. I think this is instructive for us, brothers and sisters, because we often think that the people are most in danger of missing Jesus are the irreligious, the unbelievers, the rebels, those who deny any, any aspect of the supernatural. And surely these people are in danger, in danger of, of missing Christ. They're in danger of misunderstanding and missing Jesus in every way. But we think that they are the ones who are primarily in danger. What this passage is holding out in front of us, that perhaps in just as much danger of missing the big E on the eye chart are the religious people. It's the ones who know all the answers, who've said all the right things, they've got the right pedigree, they've got the right family, they've been to church, they've been around Christians, they do all kinds of religious-y things, but they still miss Jesus. They turn what we're doing here into maybe a good deed that they are supposed to do Maybe some kind of commitment that they just know, well, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I'm around Christians, or I don't say the things I'm not supposed to, and I do say the things I'm supposed to, then surely I'm doing all the right stuff, and just we just need to recognize it is these guys were experts in their Bibles, and they missed Christ, who is standing right in front of them. IDC family, this is a very simple truth, and we talk about it all the time, but let's just commit to one another to not miss Jesus. I'm I'm reminded of Philippians chapter three verse one where Paul says, uh, uh, to say the same things to you is no problem for me and it's helpful for you. Guys, let's not miss Christ. This is why brothers and sisters, we preach the way we do because we believe that the big E on the eye chart of this Bible right here is all pointing to Christ. Why we go to the Old Testament and say yes, we want to learn about we want to learn about God, we want to learn about uh, His moral instruction and all that kind of stuff. But we want most of all to understand how it is pointing us to the fulfillment of God's perfect plan, and it is all pointing to Christ. We don't want to turn this book into a list of rules to say here's how you be a, a good Christian person and miss Christ. We don't want to present ourselves as a body of people who have turned their lives around and got it all figured out and our finances are all in order and we're good people who like to serve and miss Jesus. It is possible to do all of those things and still miss the apex of God's redemptive plan. These leaders were showing us that it is always dangerous to just be around churchy stuff, to be around religious type type stuff and to miss Jesus. Friend who's been around the church, kids, students who've been raised in the church, please look at these leaders and recognize you can be familiar with all the language, all the vocabulary, all the practices, and you can still miss the point. You have to see and know and receive and trust and follow Jesus. Not a list of rules, not a way of presenting yourself, not a political affiliation, Jesus. An unbeliever in the room, I don't know why the Lord brought you here today, but we want you to walk away with one very strong impression. And it is not that this is a room full of good people who've got it all figured out. This is a room full of pretty messed up people who've had their lives transformed because they met this Jesus. And we want nothing more than for you to see him and behold him and to have your life transformed about him. The sweetness of being just overcome with this man, Jesus Christ, who is the pinnacle, the apex of everything God is doing in the world. So don't miss Jesus. Second, don't mess with unfaithful leaders. Don't mess with unfaithful leaders. Now I don't mean like don't mess with that Rottweiler kind of thing. I mean like don't even, don't even uh, 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 pay attention to unfaithful leaders. That's, that's what he's going for here. Jesus sees that they are, they are unable to answer him. And so in the hearing of all this, is verse 45, in the hearing of all the people, he says to his disciples, beware of the scribes. This is the one command in this passage. Watch out. Watch out of these leaders. Why? Well, he gives us at least two things that we can identify. One is that they clearly are very self-serving. You see, over and over again, they walk around in long robes. They they love greetings in the marketplaces. I just imagine. I was sitting over at, right over here. Walter Strickland just flew in. I guess a late overnight is that what it was? Yeah. So long, long flight. This is commitment to the local church right here. Okay. Uh, he walks in, and his children swarm around him, just kisses and praises or whatever. I want people to greet me like when I enter the room. Quite like actually, I don't. Don't do that. I saw, Thank you. Thank you. I didn't even know what I was saying. Don't, don't do that, okay? <laughs> this is dialogue, and I appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> I am not saying that, that Walter is like these, these teachers, to be clear. I'm saying this is the image right here. You enter a room, these leaders walk in and everybody just comes and fawns over them. Oh, you're so wise. That was a great sermon last week. I love your hair, cool sneakers, whatever your thing is. Okay, they want to walk into the marketplace and just everybody make a beeline and say, oh man, it's so great that you, he- you are here. They want the best seats in the synagogue. They want the places of honor at feasts and they pray with a kind of pretense to impress everybody. Everything they do is self-serving. It is is self-exalting. These leaders are marked marked by a kind of selfishness that advances themselves, but it doesn't just say they do these things, it's they love these things. He uses that. They like to walk around in long robes. It's not that they have the robes, it's they like the attention that it gets them. They love the greetings in the marketplaces. When they walk up, to these leaders and say, oh, you're just so good. I've never heard anybody teach the Bible. It just warms that self-centered heart that we're all prone to. These leaders are marked by a kind of self-serving leadership. And yet, the second thing, the second reason he tells us to beware is they're hypocrites. Smuggled in into all of of these descriptors of their self-exalting is their predatory nature. Look at that word, devour. He doesn't say they ignore widows. He doesn't say he just look over widows. He doesn't say their ministry is too big to be worried about widows. They devour. There is a kind of predation in these leaders. They say all the right things, they know their Bibles, they can teach all the right things, but when given the opportunity for self-exaltation and to take advantage of the very weakest and most vulnerable people among them, they will take it every time. They seek after honor, but in no way are they actually honorable. And Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for these leaders. IDC, there's, there's both a general application for us and there's a, there's a specific one. The general application is, is s- somewhat obvious. Uh, when we do not properly orient our lives around the big E on the I charts, when we do not orient our lives around the Lord Jesus and his will and his ways for our lives, when we do not see him as our savior and our Lord who directs every path that we're going to take, we are going to replace the worship of the Lord Jesus with the worship of something else and usually, often, that other thing is self. We insert ourselves in there and this is very much the essence of so much of our sin, isn't it? Is we are worshiping our own desires and our own selves rather than the Lord Jesus. We're building our lives around us rather than around him. And the, the consequences obviously lead into all manner of sins, but also all manner of hurts towards others. You know, these guys, they're, they're self-exalting and they devour widows, but it's not, let's not get too haughty, right? Whenever I'm building my life around my selfish desires, you know what your job is to, to do? Is to get on board. And when you don't get on board, what do I do? I punish you, I hate you, I have conflict, I resent you. And I will do anything it takes to get you to also worship the, at the altar of me. And it leads to all kinds of strife and disunity and hatred among us. Why? Because we are, we are worshiping self. We are become the big E on the I chart instead of the Lord. So that's the general application, but there's also a specific application. He is warning them, not just about don't, don't be self-serving. He's saying there are leaders who are self-serving. There is a very specific reality we have to reckon with and that is that from the time God has had a people, there have been wicked rulers, wicked leaders who have risen up and instead of faithfully stewarding what God has given them, he has entrusted the leadership of his people to these leaders. Instead of being faithful to steward that and care for God's people and represent him well, they have then turned that authority and that influence and that position into an opportunity for their own self-advancement and for the, 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 the oppression of God's people. We don't have time to look at it right now, but just mark down, go back and read Ezekiel 34. It is devastating. The Lord, he has a, a particular for those who have been tasked with leading his people and yet who use their position not for the good of God's people but for their own selfish gain. It is a pointed judgment. And that's exactly what he says here, isn't it? They will receive the greater condemnation. I don't think the right thing here is to ask greater than what. I don't think he's trying to make some, I think it's similar to James chapter three where he says not many of you should become teachers because you will be judged with a a, a stricter judgment. Okay, If you take on leadership, to whom much is given, much is required. When you, when you take on the role of leader, you are inviting a heightened scrutiny. And Jesus is sitting here saying, beware of these leaders. They are serving themselves. They are taking advantage of God's people. Do not follow after them. They will receive a greater judgment here. And that's not just some kind of airy-fairy promise. Go back, if you want to look back across the, across the page, to the quotation from Psalm chapter, uh, from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know what Psalm 110 is about? It's about God's perfect judgment that comes through the Messiah. It is the the aligning of the execution of God's perfect justice and the exaltation of his Christ. Jesus is saying they will receive a greater judgment. And you know why Jesus could say that? Because he's going to be the agent of the judgment. He, like the Lord in Ezekiel 34, he is looking at these these faithless leaders, and he's saying, they better watch out. But he's not really just saying, they better watch out. He's saying, you better watch out. Brothers and sisters, be careful who you're listening to and who you are following and who you are learning from. There are all manner of teachers out there, and you have access to all of them. The internet has ushered in a unique season. You have access to anything you want. And he's saying, watch out, because there are leaders out there that are, there, that are doing, they're, they're leveraging their influence for their own self-exaltation and for the oppression of God's people. Consistently, over and over and over again, when God is trying to identify faithful leaders, it is yes, they must have the right doctrine. They must be able to, this is uh, uh, Paul's instruction to Timothy and Titus. He, yes, they must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and be able to refute those who, uh, who contradict it. They have to be, have and pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But the other thing they have to have is a life that corresponds to it. They have to have a manner of living that corresponds to the doctrine that they hold. And these leaders, they might have had all the right answers, although in this situation we know they didn't. But you can find a leader who's got all the right theology... But if his life is marked by self-exaltation and of of oppressing the most vulnerable among them, he says, stay away from them. Go find your good theology somewhere else. They're dangerous and they will receive the greater condemnation. So don't mess around with unfaithful leaders. Thirdly, don't minimize simple faithfulness. Don't minimize simple faithfulness. You could put in there the beauty of simple faithfulness. Jesus looks up and he sees putting Uh, sees the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and then he saw this poor widow put in two small copper coins, I think that this passage is intentionally connected to the previous passage, not only because of the connection of of the widows, he he moves from talking about uh, the the devouring of widows' houses to hear this, this poor widow here, but also kind of thematically, the widow is given as kind of a contrast, a direct contrast between these unfaithful leaders and a faithful woman. They pine for honor and she toils away in dishonor. They clamor for praise and yet she is an anonymous nobody. She puts in two copper coins. It's like pennies, literally. It's it's nothing. Now, I want to be clear. In this passage, it does not seem to me that Jesus is primarily trying to criticize the rich. What he's doing is he's making a comparison. The rich give, perhaps abundantly, out of their abundance. Do Do you see that? They give abundantly out of their abundance. There's a proportionality to their giving. There's a measuredness, there's a reasonableness. I have lots of money, I should give lots of money. It it makes sense, right? But that's not what this poor widow does, does she? She gives, objectively speaking, next to nothing. I mean, it's really sobering to think about here. She doesn't like advance the cause. She's walking into the temple and there's a box there. She throws a couple pennies in there. The temple is no better off. She gives nothing. And yet there's an extravagance to her giving. There's a recklessness to her giving. There's an unreasonableness to her sacrifice here. And what's Jesus' summary assessment? It's that she's given more than all of them. Notice, he doesn't say more than any of them. He doesn't say, pick your rich person, I'll put the widow up against. She's given more than any given rich person. She says, take all the rich people. She's given more than all of them. Note the grace of Christ here. He sees her in her poverty, in her simplicity, and rather than seeing the smallness of her gift, he sees the bigness of her faith. He sees the, the recklessness of her contribution. This, by all accounts, is, and, and here's the thing, here's why I call it, I call it a, a simple faithfulness. Nobody looking at this woman says, huge contribution. It's a, it's a simple act. Just a couple pennies. And yet Jesus sees it for what it is. A radical act of trust and sacrifice. It's as though she sees the big E on the I-chart and she has built her life around it and said whatever faithfulness looks like, I'm ready to go as far into it as possible. As far as is clear to me, as far as the Lord makes clear to me what he desires from me, I'm willing to go all the way, recklessly, selflessly, extravagantly. And in this simple act of obedience, she is not changing the world But she is pleasing the Lord. I'm gonna say that again because I think sometimes we might need to have our, our value system reoriented. She's not changing the world. There's no statues. There's no plaques. There's no celebratory dinner. What did she get out of this? The Lord sees and he delights in it, he rejoices in it. This is a simple act of faithfulness that the Lord Jesus in his kindness, so different than the other leaders, right? He looks at her in her weakness, he does not devour her, he rejoices in her, I mean just think how how great a contrast there is between these leaders and their harshness and their self-exaltation and the Lord Jesus who is gentle and lowly and says, I did not come to, be served, but to ser- be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And here he is laying down his glory and his honor and he's saying, look at that. That is what the, de- the Lord delights in. She has given more than all of these people have given. So IDC, let's, let's not minimize simple faithfulness. Let's not minimize simple acts of obedience and faithfulness that you have in front of you as, a, as an option right now, today, tomorrow. We see a couple things from this woman. One, we see that the Lord is worth her extravagant sacrifice. At no point does Jesus say, what are you doing, foolish woman? He doesn't correct her and say, hold on to your money. There is an, an implication that he is worth her reckless sacrifice but there's also a clear statement that the Lord is pleased with her faithfulness. Even when it doesn't seem impressive to others, even when no one is watching, even when no one is going to praise you for it, the Lord sees and he is pleased with those acts of faithfulness. This means, and, and here's gonna be a frustrating thing for all of us, but this is one way that we can kind of live together in community. One thing that might be a radical act of faithfulness for you is just like super easy for somebody else. And you're just going to be like, like I wish it was that easy for me to roll out of bed. But for you, that might just be the greatest act of faith. In the midst of your anxiety or depression to step out of bed and say, I'm going to trust Jesus today. I want you to know, brother, sister, the Lord sees. He sees you in those acts of faithfulness. Husband, it might be a radical act of faithfulness for you to maybe living with a wife that you've had a lot of conflict with for whatever reason to say, today, I'm gonna love her like Christ loves the church and no one's gonna give you a medal for it. But the Lord sees and he is pleased. Students, there may never be the movie about that time that you were hanging out with your group of friends and they all went off to do something that you knew was displeasing the Lord and you say, no, I'm gonna hold off on this. And you know what, it might, it might lead you to have a, a, a uh, there might be a cost socially to it. But the Lord sees, and he is pleased by your simple faithfulness. Brother, sister who longs to be married, when you continue to pursue a spouse only in the Lord, when you continue to trust that the Lord has good for you, no one's gonna look at that write a song about it. It's not gonna make it into the history books, but the Lord sees, and he is pleased by these simple acts of faithfulness. Whatever it is for you, brother and sister, whatever that act of obedience and faithfulness, as deep as the Lord is calling you into faithfulness, I promise you, if you walk into it, one, you will not be disappointed, okay? Two, the Lord is going to be worth every bit of it, and three, he sees. He sees, uh, in between services, uh, one of our brothers pointed out to me how helpful it is to recognize that this was a woman who was caught in an oppressive system. She was the oppressed. You might sit there and be thinking, I've got every reason, I am am the victim, here are all the things that are coming against me. I want you to see, Jesus sees. And he sees your, your simple acts of faithfulness and he is pleased with them. Let's be a a church that just does not minimize these simple acts of faithfulness. But instead, like Jesus, we celebrate, we recognize that he is worth every bit of it, and we are committing ourselves. We are going to orient every aspect of who we are as a church and every uh, aspect of our lives around the big E on the I charts. And that'll be enough. That will be enough for us to continue to walk in his grace, recognizing that he is good. He's the big E for a reason. He is not like these leaders. He is good and he is faithful and he is loving and he is true. And soon after this passage, he's going to go to a cross and he's gonna show us just how selfless he is. He did it for us because he loves us and then he frees us up to walk in these simple acts of faithfulness. So may, may that be what marks us as a church. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace to us. In this word, thank you for the reminder, Lord, that you uh, are not a harsh, self-serving leader, but Lord, you are a sacrificing, selfless, loving savior. God, we thank you for your perfect plan of redemption. And we thank you that you have sent Christ. God, and we ask that even this morning we would behold him, that we would build our lives and our church around him, and that we would walk in faithfulness so that others might also see and receive the grace of knowing him.